0: Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. This is a podcast where we talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality. From sailing around the world to launching a thriving business or just standing up for what you believe in, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. With your host, journalist Shelby Stanger. This is episode five with Ryan and Nicole Levinson, a San Diego couple who sailed into their dreams to French Polynesia despite any limits and so much more. This episode is brought to you by Graced by Grit. The women's fitness company was founded to help empower women cultivate their grit to find their grace. I love their name and I love their yoga and running pants. Not only do they make my booty look good, which is always important, but they offer classic styles and flattering fits made from the highest quality materials they always look good on. Go to gracedbygrit.com and check them out. And when you enter the code Ideas, you'll get 20% off your first order. This episode was also brought to you by Surf Diva. The original all-women surf school has been teaching group, private, all-women, and co-ed lessons at their stunning San Diego location for over 20 years. I've taught surf lessons there for years and seen hundreds of men and women come through, learn to ride waves, and it literally changes their lives. Go to surfdiva.com or give them a call, and when you book a lesson in San Diego and mention this show or the code Ideas, you'll get a $10 gift card to use towards your next lesson or in their store. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode five. Ryan and Nicole Levinson left San Diego to sail to French Polynesia two years ago. They talk about what it takes to make a voyage across to the South Pacific and how you can do something wild like sailing across the ocean as well. They also share some great insights about getting over fear, learning what it takes to sail a boat on such a journey. They share about swimming with sharks, what the locals in some of the remote villages are like, what the surf is like in French Polynesia, how long a typical grocery store run takes in French Polynesia on some of the remote islands, getting naked, a time when they're most scared. They talk about the cruiser boating community and so much more. I've known these two for quite some time, And not only are they pretty entertaining, but they have an incredibly inspiring story. Ryan has FSHMD, a form of muscular dystrophy that slowly eats away his muscles, yet he's chosen to pursue a life filled with adventure despite any limits. He's been in Outside Magazine and tons of other publications. Nicole and Ryan really open up about their journey in this episode. A lot of friends and even guests have said, hey, I want to sail around the world. So this is at least how you sail across the Pacific. And if you're looking to do some sort of an adventure, you want to take a leap, you're not sure how, you have some limits, listen all the way to the end. We all open up. I hope you enjoy this show and let me know what you think. So Nicole and Ryan from Two Afloat, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Awesome. We're excited to have you. So you guys set sail about two years ago from San Diego to this day and you sailed all the way to French Polynesia. You're back on land for the first time in two years. What's it like to be back on land after living on a boat for two years in the middle of the South Pacific?
2: Everything is uh, standing still. <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's nice to have, um, well, we're lucky where we are uh, because we've got a lot of trees and vegetation. So it's, it's a beautiful place. So it's peaceful. And it's, it's awesome to be around family and to get to see all our friends um it's uh really nice to take hot showers especially when you're in a cold area and to just press a button to flush the toilet
0: because uh, flushing a toilet on a boat is a little different you
2: yeah, don't have- you, have to, you get an arm workout with it
1: <laughs> you have to open valves and turn knobs and find water to use and the whole thing
0: and there's it's a different. refrigerator so you guys are home for the holidays just to put this in context to context yes.
2: yes yes yeah and there's a functioning refrigerator with lots of food Woohoo!
1: and you can get anything you need or want within a few minutes. It's kind of ridiculous. So there's some good things that I'm sure it's also probably a little weird being home. You know, it's, I don't know about weird that it's, it's everything like stuff is familiar, like stuff hasn't really changed. Well, some stuff has changed a lot, but I think the biggest thing we noticed was that we've changed a lot. So it's kind of interesting. It's almost like we're seeing our home from, from an outside perspective. Uh, you know, cause we've been gone for so long and it, I almost feel like, like we're on vacation exploring a new culture. It's kind of fun that way.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So let's go back to two years ago. What were you each doing for work at the time, right before you left? And what did it take to get ready for a voyage like that? I mean, you, you were gone for two years. So what skills did you have to learn and what did you have to do to get ready?
2: Well, I uh, I left. We when we left on this voyage. I was uh, teaching in the elementary school, and then for a few summers, I was an ocean lifeguard um, in San Diego.
1: I was um, right before we left. I was running. I was captain of a, of a large sailboat, a hundred and thirty foot sailboat, kind of a like a luxury yacht, and uh, working on the boat mainly. But before that, I just finished a uh, almost a decade working on an ambulance. In the city of San Diego, and and doing some sort of specialized kind of water rescue stuff on the side, and that was great. It helped a lot uh, to prepare us for this trip because you know the the ambulance job teaches you to deal with stress and uncertainty, and to make decisions under pressure, and um, you know sometimes to be uncomfortable and still be able to function. The captain job uh, sort of taught me the 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 this you know how important it was to maintain a boat and to operate systems and to work with the crew and, and plan ahead and all of that and combine those two and, and, and lots of studying online and lots of reading and learning about diesel engines and electrical systems and how to do rigging and the difference between the different kind of ropes on a boat and you know what sort of adhesives do you need to use to bond certain kinds of surfaces and how do you repair fiberglass and it just goes on wow. and, you know sewing and how to cook underway and dealing with propane and Steering systems and navigation systems and then weather forecasting and route planning and you know all all of that so it was it was two years of, of Working on a boat and and learning it, it was it was more intensive than anything I ever did in in college or in any uh, You know job training stuff, uh, but it was also more rewarding in some senses because I knew that this was going to be stuff that I was relying on for our safety comfort and, and fun while we were underway, so there was this kind of like, you know, extra incentive to to try to learn the stuff and and um, reward knowing that we were going to use it right away.
0: So, did you learn by watching YouTube videos, learning from other sailors, or, or did you go to forums, or all of the above?
1: Kind of a mix of all the above. Uh, I read a lot. A lot of there's some really great, sort of really detailed technical books that are out there. Those were useful. You know, I grew up sailing, so I kind of. I already had a really solid foundation and background. I knew the language and I understood the end result that these things were talking about achieving. I just needed to kind of fill in the blanks and the steps to get there for, especially for stuff like, you know, diesel mechanics, which seems funny on a sailboat, but it does have an engine and the engine helps with charging electricity and all the rest. And that was another thing I didn't know about really DC electronics, about solar panels, about... Uh, wind generators, how do you tie it all together with the batteries and what kind of charging regime you do. So a lot of that was, was reading forums. A lot of that was books, a lot of that, not, not so much YouTube videos, a few, but uh, there's a lot of incredible information out there. The challenge is sort of sorting through it and then obviously digesting it and applying it.
0: Wow. I remember you read a ton right before you left. So Ryan, tell me about your boat.
1: Well, she's an Ericsson 38. She's a 38 foot sloop, meaning she has one mast and then usually we sail with a mainsail and then another sail on the front of the boat called a headsail. Um, she's, she's comfortable. She's, she's kind of just the right size in my opinion or our opinion for two people. She's um sort of a sporty boat. Like some boats are designed to be bulletproof and super strong and all the rest. And they tend to be usually a little bit slower and heavier and all the rest. And then some boats are ultra lightweight and really fast and, you know, tip over easy and things like that. And those are usually more for racing. And our boat kind of sits in the middle somewhere. So she's, she's fast and she's sporty and she's fun to sail, but she's well built and strong and, and, um, she's not, she's not flashy. She's, she's just a solid, well built, good performing boat for the money. But I can pretty much guarantee you if you ask, almost anyone who's been cruising a long time about their boat, they're going to give you pretty much the same answer.
0: What's your boat's name and how did you guys get, I love that you call your boat a her. Um, how did you get her?
2: Uh, her name is Naoma and we chose that name for Ryan's late gr- grandmother who was a um, just a free spirit.
0: And how, how did you guys get your boat? I think what deters a lot of people from sailing or getting into sailing is boats are expensive, or at least it, it appears they appear to be expensive.
1: Yeah, we were lucky. We had we had a small sailboat that we got for about three thousand dollars, and we <laughs> up and we sold her for about what nine eight thousand nine thousand a little over nine, a little over nine, and that that's not typical. Usually, you know, when you buy a boat, you you sell her for less than you got her for. But we really put a lot of of, of uh, tension into this boat. And, you know, that sweat equity translated into some of the money for the boat. And then the rest, we were fortunate to be able to secure a loan with with um, fairly good terms. And that uh, allowed us to afford the boat. And plus Ericsson's, the boat that we picked, they're, they're not expensive in the world of boats. Like boats can, you know, in the 38 foot range for cruising can range anywhere from a million dollars Uh, down to, you know, 10 to $15,000 really to that still be adequate for the kind of voyage we did. But our boat was, was right around what? 55, something like that. Yeah. Uh, thousand dollars, $57,000. She was built in 1988 and, and that's, that's a, that's a fairly inexpensive, um, boat for, for what we're doing compared to a lot of the other boats we see out there. But again, it's, you know, if, if somebody doesn't have a lot of money, but they want to cruise, they can get into a boat for much less money than what we have. They just might not have quite as as many sort of you know bells and whistles for comfort and uh, and things like that. But that's all that's all personal preference. It's not necessity.
0: Got it. So Ryan, you have FSHMD, a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Can you explain to people what that is, how it affects you, and how it affect how you outfitted your boat?
1: Sure. FSH muscular dystrophy is. It's actually, it's it's not common in, you know, the big realm of diseases, but it's one of the most common in types of muscular dystrophy. But because it, it affects adults and it tends to be slow progressing, it doesn't get as much attention as some of the ones that are really rapid progressing like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, or Duchenne's, which generally affects children. So it's not as well understood. And generally, you know, FSH stands for fascioscopial humeral. And what that means is the muscles in my face, my shoulders, my, we're really kind of all over my body, uh, slowly disappear over time. It's genetic. Uh, if you, if I had a child, it would have a 50% chance of inheriting the disease. There's uh, no known treatment or cure and, uh, it manifests in different people in different ways and it progresses at different speeds. So, uh, some people by the time they're my age are already using a wheelchair and have lost all the muscles in their face and around their body and, uh, and other people, you can barely even tell they, they have the disease at all. Maybe they had a small symptom and they had the genetic test and realized they had it. So in, in my case right now, I have i can't raise my arms. I can't hold them up over shoulder high. I can't do a sit-up. I can't do a push-up. Uh, my legs kind of buckle sometimes. It's getting hard to walk, especially upstairs or, uh, you know, with, with, with he- like carrying a heavy backpack or something like that. Uh, when I'm tired, I'm, I'm very unstable. and Sometimes I just fall over. Um, but, but again, I'm in sort of the middle of the, of the spectrum, uh, long-term progression. I might lose the ability to close my eyes, to smile, to kiss Nicole, uh, you know, things like that. But, um, there's no way to know, you know, how rapidly it'll progress or when that'll happen or all the rest. So I just kind of focus on what am I able to do now and how can I continue doing the things I love to do. And on the boat, what that means is modifying the systems that, are require like strength, like trimming a sail, adjusting a sail or lifting something up like the engine off of our dinghy. And we just use a lot of pulleys and ropes and levers and, and uh, things like that to, to compensate for areas where I'm not as strong as somebody who has their normal muscles. And plus we have lots of handholds around the boat and things to help uh, while I'm moving around when she's underway so that I'm less likely to kind of collapse and smash into stuff. But that's true for kind of a lot of people on boats. Maybe somebody's older or maybe someone's just not as strong or maybe they're sailing in rough waters. And, and they do a lot of the same modifications and adaptations that I do. Just, I use them in in uh, calmer conditions as well as rough conditions.
0: I always love, and I've interviewed Ryan for several stories and have known him in a cult since I was in my, actually since I was a teenager. Um, and what I always love is you have the saying that Um, you can't choose what happens to you in life, but you can choose how you respond to it. And I think that's just been such an awesome mantra. And for those of you listening, Ryan was diagnosed when he was in his 20s. He was a recreation major at San Diego State. He was an avid surfer. Um, He competed competitively at top levels in cycling. Um, And when he got diagnosed, his doctors had said, actually, you tell this story. (laughs) You tell it way better than I do.
1: They are. The first doctor diagnosed me, he said, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an outdoor rec major. I'm pretty much out in the wilderness every weekend, and I, I love surfing and all this stuff. And he says, no, no, that's all unrealistic. He goes, you can't do this physical stuff. You need to quit it all and basically, like, you know, learn something useful like typing into a computer or something. And I was like, well, why is that? He said, well, you know, your muscles are diseased and they're disappearing. So if you do anything strenuous and it causes any kind of damage to the muscles, they cannot recover like a like a healthy person could, and you will, you'll accelerate the muscle loss. You'll end up, you know, catastrophic muscle loss, I think was the word he used. So, you know, it didn't take me long to process that. I was basically driving home from the doctor, and I'm like, so here's my choices. Like, wait around for the muscles to disappear anyways, or keep doing the stuff I love, and maybe they'll disappear more quickly, but at least I'm still living my life. And to me, that was kind of a no-brainer, and I just kept doing the things I do, and some muscles disappeared and maybe even more quickly than they would have otherwise and other muscles got stronger but most importantly me as a functioning organism was healthier and stronger and better and ultimately this doctor and others started kind of taking note of that and you know while they couldn't sanction a research study to prove their hypothesis that I would get destroyed you know they were certainly interested in following along as I started getting really into serious training again for triathlon and paddleboard racing and some other sports. And uh, ultimately not just because of me, but, but in part, I think because of, of this example, the prevailing advice now is for someone with FSH is to keep doing kind of what they can do and what they want to do. And just sort of be aware that there is a risk if they, if they push too hard. So sort of a, you know, kind of finding that balance is, is the challenge, but, um, it's it's accepted now to go out and live your life and, and be physically active, even encouraged, even if you have FSH muscular dystrophy.
0: And what I love about seeing you over the years is you've you've really pushed sports and at every sport you do, you do it full on. So you raced triathlons for years and you competed in Xterra and you'd win. (laughs) You wouldn't just get like, (laughs) you know, your age group first place, you'd win the whole thing. And then um, when you couldn't do triathlons anymore, you went into stand up paddling when it was too hard to stand up on a surfboard. And now you bodyboard, which I think is really cool. And you got really into sailing, um, which is such a unique sport hobby activity. What is it about sailing that lured you both in?
2: I think just uh, starting off with, the, with sailing and, and just going out and sailing in the bay and the ocean, you are much closer to the water um, and the elements and feeling the, feeling the wind on your face and hearing the, the water swishing by and the, the wind in the sails. and um, It's just a bit it's refreshing to be out on the water. Um, even if you just go for a day sail, it just kind of is you're in a different world you get to experience and see and smell so
0: many different things. And I think that was really the draw for me. It probably was a quite a contrast. You were in a classroom with little kids all day long. Was there any just desire for that that kind of sense of quiet compared to the classroom?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. Not having a bunch of chitty-chatty kids. <laughs> definitely. But um, it's definitely um, very quiet. It can be very quiet Um when you're out sailing. And that's, that's definitely that quietness and calmness is uh, most of the time. Calmness is what a big lure was for me.
0: And uh, for those of you listening, Nicole, I met your principal at your school the other day, and he said that you got your job as a teacher at your school by riding a beach cruiser to his office, dropping off your resume and saying, Hey, I need a job. And he loved it. And he hired you. So I think you guys both have some sort of guts in you that has allowed you to do these crazy voyages. It was a funny story (laughs) that I hadn't heard.
1: Her yeah. beach cruiser, by the way, has little streamers trailing off of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, Only in
0: San Diego can you get a job like that. That's awesome. Um, Ryan, what is it about sailing that lured you in?
1: Well, you know, I've been sailing most of my life, but I didn't really get serious about it till college. And part of it, honestly, initially was because I was working at this place that teaches sailing and I knew how to sail. So it was, I wanted to get better at sailing so that I could be better at teaching sailing. And through that process I discovered kind of the thing that I love most about sailing which is the kind of the connection you have to sort of the forces of nature in a way kind of like when you're surfing you're riding a wave and it's it's a little bit different than skateboarding you know in skateboarding you're on a half pipe and gravity's pushing you back and forth and so but on when you're surfing you're riding this literally energy moving through the water and and if you can kind of you know, you, there's something about it where that, that lets you kind of touch the storm that took place weeks earlier and sent that pulse of energy across the ocean. And finally you're riding it and sailing. It's kind of the same thing, except not only are you riding the waves that are pushing you around in your boat, but you're also feeling the, the, the wind and, you know, wind is generated by the sun heating up parts of the earth and other parts getting cool. And then changing the pressure systems and this sort of interaction of, of the, the air and the land and the sun and all these forces together is, is what generates the, the forces that allow you to move through, through the ocean. And when you're sailing, you're in touch with all of that. You're intimately in touch with all of that and you feel every little change. And, and, uh, I don't know, it's, it's something about this connection to something bigger and, and, uh, learning how to, you know, pretty much dance with, with that kind of, uh, energy, is is something that makes sailing, I, I don't even know the word for it, but, you know, just such a powerfully personal experience for me.
0: That's awesome. You guys left from San Diego. Where did you land and how long did your voyage take?
1: Well, we went from San Diego to Mexico and kind of bounced down Baja, then to mainland Mexico. We staged in Puerto Vallarta waiting for good weather. And then from there, we hopped across to the Marquesas Islands, pretty standard route for people crossing the Pacific Ocean. And then the Marquesas Islands, we went to the Tuamotus, which are a series of ultra remote atolls. Um, Many are uninhabited, kind of in between the Marquesas and Tahiti, which was our next destination. And then from Tahiti, Morea, Morea, Huahine. And um, since then, we've been bouncing back and forth between the Marquesas and, and, you know, the societies, Tahiti, that area.
0: That sounds lovely. (laughs) We're going (laughs) to get into each of those places. When you're in San Diego, was there any hesitation about leaving and then, or untying the dock lines?
1: I I don't know if hesitation is the right word, but there was definitely trepidation. Uh, You know, it was very, a very, uh, you know, I mean, I've said this before, but I was, you know, more afraid of what it would mean if we didn't untie the dock lines. You know, we, we sort of committed to, to this dream, to this adventure. It's a mental shift where you're just saying, okay, I'm going to surrender to what happens next. I know the direction I'm going to go, but I don't know what it's going to bring. I just sort of know my next step. And our next step was to untie the dock lines and go south. And then since then, it's just been a series of next steps. And, you know, but it was that first initial sort of, you know, untying and going that was that was the, the big shift between preparation and, and execution, you know, between uh, anticipation and, and actually being on our own adventure.
0: You had another guest on who just said that starting lines were much more important than finish lines and just starting... It's huge. How long did it take to get across from San Diego to to French Polynesia?
1: From Mexico, it took us, what, 21 days? 21 days. 21 days from Mexico to the Marquesas.
0: 21 days on open ocean. I'm guessing there had to be some scary times, some really memorable times. Can you maybe give me an example of each?
1: We were about uh, 1,500, 2,000 miles from the nearest land in an area where where really no boats go other than the occasional sailboat between you know that sailing the same route as we were but we hadn't come across any other boat traffic in you know over a week so we were we were truly on our own and you know we were down below nicole was asleep i was getting ready to to try the long distance radio and our other crew was kind of relaxing and uh we heard this loud rumbling noise and and all of a sudden we heard just bam and it was a rogue wave like a, a breaking wave kind of randomly in the middle of the ocean that broadsided us hit us on the side of the boat and the force of that water tipped the boat over all the way on her side so the mast the pole that holds the sails was actually in the water and a few things that weren't strapped down in the cabin fell. I remember seeing a jacket hanging on a hook uh, pointing perpendicular to the to the wall that it was up against because oh. we were just sideways and um, you know the boat has a big heavy uh, lead fin on the bottom called a keel and that fin helps keep her upright so it was it wasn't necessarily dangerous because we had prepared the boat to be able to handle offshore conditions like this and she righted herself and uh, you know, some of the electronics were submerged and they shorted out and we had to fix that and there was certainly a lot of water everywhere um, especially because Nicole left one of the windows open and got drenched but um, in fact that's how she woke up thinking that we poured a bucket of water on her <laughs> <laughs> I
2: wasn't very happy <laughs>
1: but um sketchy yeah but you know it was two things it was scary because okay wow here we are in the middle of nowhere but you know we were okay so you learn not to dwell on the what could happens and instead focus on the what what is and what is is that the boat righted herself and all the systems were repairable and things could dry and we continued on our way so it was also kind of like um you know, gave us more confidence as well.
0: You sound really calm when telling the story. But I imagine when it was happening, there was there was some adrenaline going,
1: you know, not really, it was more like focus. That's kind of what I was getting to before when we're talking about preparation for this voyage, like, you know, the stuff I did on the big wave tour and the stuff I did on the ambulance and, and some other experiences in life, kind of taught me that I work well under pressure, I kind of I'm almost better when things are like that than I am when there's just sitting around with nothing to do. And, um, and this was just another example of that. It was like, we just kind of click into this mode and, and, and execute. And, uh, and it was fine. Like I, I honestly, I was much more fearful when like, uh, confronted with you know thousands of sharks or whatever than I was, uh, getting knocked down in the middle of the ocean. Although in retrospect, it, it seems maybe a little bit, more radical than it seemed at the time.
0: Well, we need to get into this shark thing later. Um, What was some of the, what were one of the most memorable times you had on your crossing? You had another crew member with you. I mean, it had been really fun at some points, just being in the middle of absolute nowhere.
1: Oui, bonjour Alain. Aline,
2: Aline. Ça va? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think um, definitely having a third crew member um, and having that rotation of on-watch and off-watch and being able to get a bit more sleep um, was key and huge in having a successful passage. Um, one of the most memorable for me, two, two times um, I thought for me were just awesome, was one, when we crossed the equator, just knowing now that we were in the southern hemisphere, which I'd never been, and so I was really stoked on that. And then another one was one of those quiet evenings, um, mellow seas, and it was really, really dark out. And all I could hear were the dolphins, like many dolphins at the bow. And I couldn't really see them except for they were just glowing. And then they had like this flow behind them. And it was just for like an hour. and It was just beautiful. From the
1: bioluminescence.
0: Right. How pretty. Ryan, any any memorable moments? You had two girls with you that were young (laughs) and beautiful on a whole voyage. Well, I don't know if Uh, I'm I'm that
2: young. (laughs) You're
1: pretty young and beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was okay. Uh, it was definitely rad having lean on board. She pulled her weight fairly well and made the trip that much more enjoyable because we weren't just completely exhausted the whole time. But I remember soon after we left Mexico. First of all, I agree with Nicole. The equator was was pretty insane, and some of the wilderness experiences were obviously you know transformative. But just from a pure like adrenaline fun standpoint, we hooked into this giant yellowfin tuna. Off of Mexico. The thing's massive. You can see it in one of our videos. And we got that thing on board. And
0: um, how big we- do you think that thing
1: was? Just- oh, gosh. It filled when we filled later, it filled what, 40?
2: 30 or 40 quart Qu- size Ziploc. Holy cow. I think it was almost, it was a little bit taller. So I think it was almost six feet tall. Wow.
1: There's a photo of a lean somewhere on our Facebook or something that, you know, listeners can check out. Um, but she's holding it up and she's, she's really struggling and it's just, we already filleted. It. So she's just holding up kind of the, the, the carcass of it. And it, it reaches all the way from, from her head down to her feet pretty And
2: much. the head is massive and it's the eyes were is. big.
1: <laughs> but anyways, while we were sort of dispatching the fish and getting ready to fillet it, it kind of flailed a little bit and was flinging blood and fish everywhere. So
2: Everywhere. Everywhere. Gosh.
1: So the girls, they had to strip down. So. There was a while there where like, I had to run the boat. So they my had dog, to
0: strip down. They
1: uh, had to.
2: You know what? Trying to get fish blood out of clothing is like... Got it, got it, got uh,
1: it. Okay, so you guys got naked
0: and killed a fish.
1: Yeah. yeah, so I was running the boat and making sure everybody was safe while the yeah. girls were naked, covered in blood, you know, filleting this giant fish. <laughs> One with nature. <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm feeling a lot of sympathy just, my just for so my... Sure.
0: <laughs> so the audience knows that their Facebook is at to afloat. Um, we're going to get more into that later, but... I'll have that in the show notes.
1: We actually have that that whole scene. A lot of it is on video. With, oh, with, yeah.
0: And on their YouTube video, which is also yeah. at Two Afloat. We're going to talk about that more later as well. So what would it take for anyone with no sailing experience to do a crossing like this?
1: They just have to decide that they truly want to do it and then just keep putting one foot in front of the other and see where that adventure leads. And, and I, I know that sounds is flippant the right word, like maybe like a oversimplification, but that's really all it is. Like we came across people who had never sailed a day in their life. We came across boats that I probably wouldn't sail across, uh, you know, a small lake, you know, <laughs> but, but you know what, before we left, we had this, this sort of, you know, kind of understanding of what it would take to do this. And in, in our minds, it was, all these redundant systems and safety gear and the ability to do navigation and forecasting and medical. And, you know, there's a million things you consider forever and think of things that can go wrong. And it's like chasing something that you can never reach because there's always something else that you could, could prepare for, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to prepare for everything. And that's what traps a lot of people. They never leave because they're always preparing for every single possible what if. Um, so at some point you have to accept that you're going to be going not prepared. You know there's actually a saying there's two kinds of sailors. There's the ones who leave unprepared and the ones who never leave the dock. So you know, if you keep in mind that really all you need to cross an ocean is something that will stay afloat and then food and water. And then everything else on top of that is just adding on layers of comfort. and a lot of it is mental comfort, security, you know, feeling like you're you've got this safety net. but uh, I think that, that again, the, the one thing that you need to to do this is just know that you're going to go, know that you're not going to be completely ready for every possible emergency or even a lot of emergencies, depending on your time and you know knowledge and money and stuff, and then just commit to keep putting one foot in front of the other until finally you untie the lines and you're underway.
0: Huh, that's, I love that. Um, you talk a lot about fear on your YouTube videos. What have you learned about fear? Just how have your feelings changed about fear over the years, as well?
1: I've I've learned to I have a healthy respect for fear now. Fear is what keeps me sharp and keeps me focused and paying attention. Uh, you know, fear is what helps us avoid uh, potential problems. But fear is also, uh, you know, it, I've learned to understand that all that fear is is it's a kind of a like a physical response to thoughts of what might happen. It's not. Actually something that's taking place, you know at at any given moment. You're actually probably fine But you're afraid that you might not be fine in the future So you're having these thoughts of what could happen what might happen and and then you're having this like visceral response to that and I think that once you understand that you You kind of recognize that really it's kind of this cage that you're imposing on yourself It's your mind you you have the choice of what you're gonna focus on and think about so if fear is trapping you and keeping you from doing stuff or causing you to make a million excuses why you can't do something that, that you're kind of drawn towards, that's something that I think is worth exploring and, and deciding how is it do you want to live your life you know, inside a cage of, of um, you know, fear of what might happen or uh, embracing what actually is happening and, and um, you know, not just having a life but having an adventure.
0: I love that. Have an adventure, not a life. So why French Polynesia? You could have sailed anywhere. You could have just sailed to Hawaii. You could have hung out in Mexico and surfed empty waves there. What was it about French Polynesia? I pointed
1: pointed at Nicole like, hey, you answer this one. And she just kind of looked at me and shrugged and goes, why not? (laughs) (laughs) We like coconuts? No. (laughs) You know, the reason why French Polynesia is a couple of things. One, it's far. It's a challenge you know, mentally to get there because you have to cross, you know, almost 3,000 miles of open ocean with no possible places to go in between. So it requires kind of a commitment that it, that was appealing to us. Uh, you cross the equator, you go through different zones of weather, different trade wind belts. So that was kind of an interesting, the challenge of the weather routing and all the rest appealed to us. And then French Polynesia itself as a destination is, it's a, you know, if you're into ocean sports and and remote exploration and and things like that. It's especially if you like Polynesian culture, it's a fantasy land for all those kinds of things. So, and
2: there's, and and also there's just such a variety, there's such a difference between the, the islands. So the Marquesas is totally different from the two Motus and the two Motus are totally different from the society. So you get to explore um, so many different types of islands and atolls and they offer so many different things. It's
0: just, it's like never ending. So tell tell me about it. Like what's it, what's it like there? What's the landscape like, especially I want to know what the people are like there.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, if I may, there's one other main reason why we selected French Polynesia. And that is because when you're sailing, it's much easier to go with the wind than against the wind. And French Polynesia is a destination that can be reached um, almost entirely going with the wind. Yeah, they call it a trade wind route. And, and it's a very commonly used trade wind route for people who want to kind of so Hawaii is also, but Hawaii is much closer, and then to get anywhere else from Hawaii kind of is difficult, requires going against the wind. So French Polynesia is kind of the gateway to the South Pacific for anyone traveling from um, you know, North or South America or Central America. In in terms of what the place looks like, uh it's kind of they're all different. The Marquesas are the youngest of the islands. So they're, they're relatively, I mean, you know, bazillions of years old still, but less bazillions than than the Tuamotus and the societies. <laughs> so it's like, they're still rugged. They still kind of look like big jaggedy volcanoes that are covered in, you know, lush green life. It's, it's that rich, fertile, iron-rich soil from the volcanoes. And uh, it's very remote. There's not a lot of people there. And there's lots of uh, kind of, you know, wild goats and wild boar and fruit, that just grows on every tree. If you get hungry, you can just go walk on shore and pick mangoes or coconuts, you know. And you're and you're sweet. Uh, tons of fish, and then every time you throw a line in the water, you pull up a giant wahoo or a tuna, or uh, you know local fish like pakekai. Uh, It's 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 wild. There's not a lot of really well protected anchorages because there hasn't been enough time to build up coral reefs and stuff to sort of create barriers like in the other parts of french polynesia so the anchorages are there's a lot more rolling around and open swells that reach in there and you know bash dramatically against the the cliffs that sheer cliffs i mean we have there's some areas where there's these like 1000 foot tall cliffs with like waterfalls that shoot off them straight into the ocean it's just it's that kind of Jurassic park sort of okay. feel
0: it sounds stunning and your pictures are absolutely stunning what are the people like there
1: in the Marquesas, they're, how would you describe them, Nicole?
0: They're the, the most generous people
2: I've I've ever met, I think, out of the majority of the Polynesians, and um, just always smiling and very welcoming.
1: Yeah, and they're very proud of, of their Polynesian heritage. They still speak their original language, Marquesian, which is somewhat similar to Hawaiian and somewhat similar to Tahitian. Um, their, Marquesas was sort of the the start of it all a lot of uh ancient times a bazillion years ago uh you know the asians migrated across polynesia kind of ended up in the marquesas and from there branched off to hawaii and to tahiti so in some ways the marquesas was was kind of this this kernel of polynesian civilization and and they still embrace and practice many of their traditions not not in a kind of um you know like a like a touristy way but it's it's just their way of life and always has been
2: like you'll you'll you hear drumming all the time. they're always playing their music and and drumming and singing, and um they just really enjoy with being with their their families and extended families and just um singing and and playing traditional songs and having a
0: little dance as well
1: splashing around in the rivers and the water.
0: I love on your YouTube videos when you have the kids in there. The kids just seem awesome in French Polynesia everywhere you guys have been. the kids have been. They seem to live a little bit more wild than, than kids here.
1: Oh, for sure. Um, not just the local kids, but also the boat kids are incredible, but, uh, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Um, yeah, I think that they're, they're less coddled and there's no, you know, they're, they're more sort of finding the entertainment in the world around them instead of through their their gadgets. Yeah. You know, there's, some people have cell phones, but like a whole family might share a cell phone or they're, um, they're, they might have a TV, but there's only like two channels to watch. <laughs> you
0: know? just- That's awesome. I love that. Um, do you have any fun moments with some of the kids out there?
1: In the Marquesas? <laughs> Anywhere. Oh, a-
0: you guys have been gone for two years. You've met some really cool kids.
1: Yeah, oh, God, there's so many stories. I mean, We're still all focused on the Marquesas here, I guess. But there was this one kid named Hardy who didn't speak any English. Really young. How old was Hardy? Like-
2: he was like 11. Okay, so it wasn't
1: that he was like eleven, doesn't speak a word of English. We don't speak any Marquesian barely. But um, he used to love to come to the boat. So he would go down to the dock kind of adjacent to where we were anchored in this bay in the Marquesas with no other boats. We were there for five months and only saw maybe one or two other boats the whole time there. It was just locals. No no internet, no cell phone, no no nothing. The village had maybe what, 50, 100 family of people. I don't
2: know. Fifty, maybe fifty families.
1: Yeah, like nothing there. Anyways, so he would come and hoot, and we'd go pick him up in the dinghy, and he would just hang on the boat all day. And one day, I w- I was in the water, and and I had been surfing, and uh, I cut myself. It's a kind of a heavier wave, and I screwed up, and it was the big talk of the village how the you know the white guy was stupid enough to surf this wave. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so so Hardy was on the boat, and his dad rips. His dad's like the best surfer in town, and so I said in my best French, I said. You know, to Papa, I go, you know, champion la gauche. he's the champion of the left, you know. And Hardy goes, "Wee oui, wee, oui, yes, yes, you know, my father is a champion. And then he looked at my, at my cuts, very serious, like, expression on his face, and then he goes, you, no champion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a funny little kid. So what was the surf like there? I mean, you don't have to give away names of waves, um, but just tell me about the surf there, the waves, and also what the locals were like in the water.
1: In the Marquesas, the surf is very fickle. It's kind of not worth going to as a destination if you're into surfing. Um, we just happened to get lucky and we were in a bay that just happened to have waves a few times. And um, so that was it was kind of a, an added little treat. And you know, when there's waves, all the locals come out because they're it's such a, a rare thing. And um they do all throughout French Polynesia, there's this there's this great sort of tradition where when you paddle out, the first thing you do is you go to everybody in the lineup and you shake their hands. It's very welcoming. Almost, you know, the exceptions would be like the big cities in Tahiti, but almost everywhere that you go in the water, people, you know, are, are fairly friendly and respectful, and everybody takes their turn. And but if you don't, if you cut line or if you, you know, drop in on somebody, these are these. This is a warrior culture. The Polynesians are pretty, pretty proud, strong, you know. Uh, tradition driven people. And, um, you know, the, the, they might not necessarily just like pound you right away, but they'll, it'll be pretty clear that you've, um, you know, kind of did something taboo, <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's, but it's sort of, um, it's not, it's not just simply because you're there, it would be, you'd have to really screw up. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a beautiful thing to, to surf in French Polynesia and, I think anybody who listens to this, who goes there, I hope that, that, you know, if, if they do surf in these places that they do it with respect and love and, and kind of absorb the culture rather than, than, um, assuming it's just like wherever they're from and, and, you know, go with an open mind and an open heart.
0: I think that's good advice. If you go surf anywhere in the world and if you follow those rules, I think those are good rules to live by. Um, what are you surfing on? You've, Body surfed, you've bodyboarded, you've stand-up paddled. What's your vehicle these days?
1: You know, it depends on the wave. Um a lot of waves out in French Polynesia are really heavy, kind of they break really fast over shallow coral reef and they're they're pretty hollow. So to you need to be able to ride in the pocket and in the tube. And and for me, a bodyboard is is the best vehicle I have to access that right now. But if there are a few waves that are slightly softer, and on those waves, I like to mix it up between, you know, surf mats and bodyboards and stand up paddleboards occasionally and uh you know even body surfing but not a lot of that in the last year I guess but also when it's windy I really like getting on the kite because the kite lets you kind of explore the surf zone in three dimensions you know you can use the waves as ramps or ride them or zigzag around them you know and it's kind of like a mix between sort of a snowboarder's approach to a mountain and a surfer's approach to the lineup and so that's kind of a you know, I just basically everything but a surfboard at this point, I guess, is the short answer.
0: Yeah, what's so cool is that you're still kiteboarding.
1: I love kiteboarding. It's it's um with a harness, you know, the the most of the load is taken by my body instead of by my arms. So uh sometimes it's hard to edge against the force of the pull of the kite on this on the board. But you know, the new kites are so easy to use, especially I have airrush kites, which is a company that makes these really high-performance kites that, that have a huge range of, of control and adjustability. So I can make the kites not pull very hard, or I can make them pull hard when I need it to to go faster. It's almost, um compared to the stuff we used years ago, it's almost cheating. It's so easy to do, you know, but it's un- fun, lots of freedom.
0: Um, One of the times I did a story on Ryan, it was a long time ago, he owned a kiteboard school, one of the first kiteboard schools in – San Diego. And I actually really, really wanted kiteboard lessons. So I said, Hey, I'll trade you. (laughs) I'll trade, I'll do a story on you, but I really want kiteboard lessons. Um, And then I realized he had many more stories than just about kiteboarding. I love that you're still kiteboarding. You know, you're not just kiteboarding, but you guys have done a lot of exploring through just free diving, scuba diving, snorkeling. And there was one YouTube video where you're swimming with so many sharks. Tell me about some of your experience swimming in the water out there, especially with, you know, Jaws.
2: <laughs> well, they're much smaller than Jaws. Um, there's definitely a lot of uh, sharks out there, black tips, white tips, grays. And <clears throat> they seem to be, yeah, some lemons. They seem to be more um, in the, the past, and that's a great spot spot to go and just kind of hang out and watch them and and watch them in their own environment. They, for the most part, um, they really do ignore you. And, um, but there are some that are, can, can be a bit more curious, especially we've experienced the juveniles and they like to sometimes kind of show a little, uh, not, not so much aggression, but kind of show that they are, they're there.
0: (laughs) And, um, what does that mean? Because I mean, if a shark, even if it's juvenile, just takes a little nip at you, that's serious. Um, they don't. True,
2: but they don't. They don't take a little nip. They don't get too close. They just kind of arch their back just a little bit, and maybe like
0: um, which twitch just a little.
1: <laughs> Sounds horrifying. The areas that have the most sharks are the two Motu Atolls. They're they're really untouched. There's they're still left in much of their pristine state. There's not overfishing. There's not um, pollution, and they're remote enough that that the oceans are very healthy, and there's a lot of biodiversity, and and that includes sharks, which are. Uh, if you have a lot of sharks, you have a, a healthy ecosystem generally. So it's a, it's a sign of that. So when Nicole was talking about finding the sharks in the passes, the Tuamotus um, are basically just coral reefs that that used to be islands, and the islands eroded away gazillions of years ago, And it, but the coral reef remained. And they're only a few feet above sea level, and they make a calm area that you can anchor your boat. But to get inside that coral reef, there has to be a little cutout, and maybe... Two gajillion years ago, there used to be a river there or something, but now it just makes a little sort of opening that you can get into these into these reefs. And in those, there's current that flows in and out of that opening when the tides change, and the sharks and the tuna and the barracuda and the wahoo and all these fish hang out in these in these passes. It's kind of it's kind of like a concentration of of, of all this life. And there's times when you'll go in there and the current's flowing, and the sharks will be swimming against the current. Staying in place, like as though they're on a treadmill, and you'll see literally thousands of sharks at a time, all the species Nicole mentioned, and they're sort of uh, they they call it like a wall of sharks. and like Nicole said, generally, they just maybe check you out or the the younger ones or the ones where you're encroaching on their territory might make might make aggression displays towards you. but the rest of them are are more just um sharing space with you. you know they're well fed, they're not threatened. And, and you feel that when you're experiencing them, now, there's, there's exceptions. Uh, there, there was, there was one time we were in one of the, uh, the atolls and, and some of the locals there had been fishing and they'd been feeding the sharks. So Nicole and I didn't know this and we went swimming and, and, uh, some of the black tips approached well, me. Nicole was kind of a little bit away. She saw it though. They approached me kind of more aggressively and you had to shove them away and kick them and stuff. <laughs> what? And, um, you know, so that was that was kind of a little made. You know, it causes a little pause, but uh, it wasn't. Yeah. But uh, you know, the whole time we were there, there was only four or five maybe attacks on humans, and they you, were
2: spearfishing. Yeah,
1: them. usually they were spearfishing, except one kiteboarder got attacked because he he <laughs> he
0: ran into one. Of them. He ran
1: into a black tip <laughs> and the black tip got pissed. <laughs> <laughs> took his leg. <laughs>
0: it was pretty funny. Wait, I can't believe you guys are laughing about this. Okay. So you have definitely gotten a little seasoned um with sharks. Tell me tell me about the cruiser community. Are they all salty sailors? Are they straight out of a Jimmy Buffett song or more like Pirates of the Caribbean?
2: Oh, it's such a mix. It's all the above. It's all the above and a total mix. Going back earlier when you were talking about kids, the boat kids are just like unreal. They're just they're not kids. They're not like the kids around here. They're just um more self-sufficient take on a little bit more responsibility and are seem to be way more adventurous and parents allow them to be that and don't coddle them as much which is really nice
1: yeah one time we were on a friend's boat and it was getting late in the evening we're kind of all watching the sunset and having a beer and these um the kids came by they were maybe eight seven or eight something like that and there's a group of them and, and the parents were like hey did you guys um, did you have lunch today? And the kids are like, yeah, yeah. And the mom's like, well, what did you have? And he's like, well, I speared a fish and then we made a fire and cooked it on the beach and, you know, had some coconuts with it. And she's like, okay, good. You know, go play. (laughs) Wow.
0: That is, that's refreshing. Okay. So if you guys are planning on having kids, anybody listening, go take a boat out, raise them on a boat. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So what's it like living on a boat? Is it, is it, is it living the dream or is it just a different lifestyle?
2: No, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, it's definitely a different lifestyle. You're in much smaller quarters. Um, things, can, things take a little bit longer. and You, know, you don't, can't just throw your clothes in a laundry machine. You have to hand wash it. And a lot of times you hand wash it with salt water and then fresh, rinse it with fresh water. Um,
1: and you have to make that fresh water.
2: Yeah. So things definitely take a lot longer. When you need to go get food, you plan on that being a half a day versus just hopping in your car, running down to Trader Joe's or wherever. And, and then within the hour, you're back home with a fridge full of food.
0: Wait, can we can we actually go to that, Nicole? I, I've heard you tell a grocery story before. Can you tell people what it's like to get groceries in French Polynesia, especially in some of the more rural towns you visited?
2: Yeah, a lot of times um, you don't have a car, so you're on foot. You've got your, you grab your big backpack and you start hitchhiking. It's you don't even have to put your thumb out; people just
0: stop. But first, you that. have to get off your boat, take a dinghy to the shore, and then do that.
2: Yes, yes. Drop the dinghy, put the engine on, most likely, and uh, usually Ryan will take me to shore. Uh, I jump off, take a radio with me, which so. is a
1: challenge if there's waves.
2: Yeah yeah and then it's just all about hitchhiking, and sometimes you meet some real characters and really cool people on the way. and once you grab your food and, and heading back uh, hitchhiking, sometimes you are lucky and you get well, actually, that's diff- that's a different perspective. I was felt really lucky when I would get picked up a hitchhiking and then we had to do little tasks along the way, which just made the adventure just so much more um, not exciting, but just so much more of an adventure for example, um, stopping to um, gather a bunch of greens so that the lady could go and feed her goats and then going to her house and watching her call the goats off the mountain and then feeding them. So stuff like that that you would never have anywhere else.
0: (laughs) I I cherish those moments. So how long would a grocery trip take particularly?
2: It really really depends. My longest one was eight hours when uh, we got hitchhiked and went to grandma's house first for a few hours until we got another car to go back to, um, the little village that we were at. Um, so that took about eight hours. And then there's other times where, um, the town is not too far away and, and you kind of figure out when the supply ship is coming and you make sure that you are there at the store, like as they are unloading their fresh fruits and vegetables or mainly fresh uh, vegetables so that you can at least get some stuff. Um, with the locals so that they, before they they buy it all
0: out. Wow. That's definitely different than a Trader Joe's run, but it sounds fascinating. Ryan, any perspective from you? Go ahead.
1: Yeah. By fresh vegetables, when you're in the atolls and the supply ships and and you're, and you're sort of doing that, we're talking like potatoes and some cabbage and carrots, you know, you don't really have like,
2: and moldy broccoli and
1: moldy broccoli. If you're lucky, Uh, you don't have a huge variety of, of, of food choices in the Tuamotus when you're in the Marquesas, the food shopping tends to look a lot more like, um, uh, you know, like canned goods and and you know rice and things like that. Because fruit is just such abundance, literally, like it would fall off people's trees and they didn't like that was kind of a nuisance for them because the rats would come and eat the fruit and all the rest. So what locals would do is put all their fruit in these giant sacks and then bring them down to the shoreline and then kind of call us out from the boat and we'd go to shore and they'd hand us this giant. I mean huge like those giant you know sacks of of rice you see that they take on ships you know it was like that size filled with bananas and papayas and mangoes and
2: whatever uh, was in season
1: yeah all kinds of local local tropical fruit more fruit than we could ever possibly eat uh you know sometimes we would be in an anchorage where there's no village and you know we'd make some oatmeal or something and Nicole would swim ashore and grab some mangoes and come back to the boat and we just cut them up you know i mean it was like so grocery shopping Varied, you know, food provisioning. We should say varied wide, widely, depending on, um, you know, what sort of density of local population and which part of French Polynesia you were in. But it was always an adventure.
0: Sounds really fun. Um, do you guys have any routines you stick to every day? Ways you eat, morning meditations, morning yoga, things you do kind of every day.
1: Definitely. There's there's sort of two patterns. There's kind of the underway pattern, and then there's the at anchor pattern. Um, at anchor. We usually get up kind of with the sunrise and almost always immediately launch into about an hour or so of yoga and then you know another 15 minutes to an hour's worth of meditation. Um, if depending on conditions, that's when we'll also go for a long paddle or sometimes a swim or, or do exercises around the boat. And then we usually have breakfast. And then after breakfast, it depends. If, it's, if the wind is up, we'll go kite. If there's waves, we'll go surf. Maybe the tide's right, we'll go dive. Otherwise, the rest of our time is spent, um, a lot of it maintaining the boat and, uh, and ourselves provisioning, watching the weather, uh, interacting with locals or the other cruisers and so forth. And when we're underway, it's, it's much different. We have sort of a set schedule of, uh, you know, because you have to always, someone has to be running the boat. So you take turns and, um, you know, the, the only things that are said are kind of like meal times. And maybe there's certain times a day when, uh, you would go on to the satellite phone or the radio to, to download weather or to see, uh, if there's any other boats in your area. But, but, um, you know, it's kind of, you get into this sort of rhythm where you're only awake for two or three hours at a time and then you sleep for two or three hours and you're awake for two or three hours. And it goes like that around the clock for weeks on end sometimes. And, um, yeah, it takes a couple days to adjust and then you're just kind of cruising.
0: What are some of the things that you've noticed that are just different about you that you, you feel like you've really learned after two years sailing, living in another culture, Crossing the Pacific.
2: Well, I think for me, I've definitely become more confident in myself. Yes, um, in my ability to <clears throat> carry myself differently. Nicole, sure. you're a badass.
0: I gotta <laughs> tell you that it's awesome. Yep. It's awesome seeing you. Um, right. This is a this is a school teacher. that went out and you know became an ocean lifeguard, but she <laughs> handles a lot of the sailing on the boat, and she's an amazing cook. So I know you personally. So sorry, audience, but but Nicole mm-hmm. really is a badass ryan is too but hey, you know you nicole it. it's really cool seeing you
1: well nicole is also well. charging him. she's learned learning how to surf in some of the heaviest waves on the planet which is
0: But you know what that
2: reef still scares me and i have to constantly remind myself don't look down just look straight <laughs> look forward don't look down
0: because yeah, when you look down it's sharp coal reef coming right at you i bet
2: yeah and it looks a lot closer than it really is oh, so then you slice the yourself clear. out
0: i can only yeah. imagine wow good for you
1: and yeah. I think for me, I've learned I've, I better understand fear more than I ever have before, and I and I understand the grip that it's had on my life, um, and, and I think on many people's lives. And I and by fear, I also mean uncertainty. You know, maybe trepidation is another word. Kind of the the um, uh, you know when when you focus when you, when you lose focus of actually what's going on right now, when you lose focus of the fact that at any given moment you're probably fine, and and, and if you really think about it, you're fine right now, right? Maybe you have a lot of fear and stuff, but you're fine right now. And, you know, before you had a lot of fear, but that never manifested. It turns out you were fine. So, you know, there's, there's really, if you look at your whole life, there's many more uh, examples of being afraid and things being okay than the other way around. And, you know, I think y- you can learn to accept that things might happen, that bad things might happen. And then just to surrender to the adventure and and say, well, if a bad thing happens, then I can be afraid. If something, um, you know, uh, that causes pain happens, well, then I'll feel pain. And and in the meantime, I feel great, and I'm going to embrace that and really be grateful and appreciate the fact that everything is is rad right now. And that is a, is the main lesson I think that I've learned uh, through two years of these kinds of experiences. It's just sort of, it's it's just changed you know, we're recalibrated kind of, um, things that used to be such a big deal and used to bother us just kind of don't anymore. And, um, and I think we're much more grateful for the things that we have.
0: Yeah. Gratitude is, is, is everything. Um, and it was, it's been really good to see you both, um, home for the holidays. And I've just really enjoyed being around your energy. It's just, you guys are really calm. You're really confident and travel does that to you, especially travel that requires a lot of effort. So what advice can you guys give to people who want to take a trip like this? You know, what's, what's the best piece of advi- advice you can give them on where to actually start?
1: I would say set a date and hold to it firmly. Um, again, this goes back to that you'll never be fully ready. Uh, but if you have a date and you just commit, no matter what, on that date, I am leaving. And, and uh, with the understanding that you will not be ready when you go. Uh, if you don't do that, you're, you won't go. And, um, that's universal, I think for everybody who's out there, they'll, they'll tell you something similar to that. I think that's
0: good advice on doing anything like, like even launching a podcast. I set a date, I definitely wasn't ready and we launched.
1: <laughs> and, and you're you, crushing it.
0: Oh, I don't, thank you. I don't know if we're crushing it, but we're having fun. Um, and it's great to have guests like you guys on the show. Now you're doing YouTube videos, which is totally different than anything you've done before. Tell me about the creative process of creating YouTube videos um, I remember when you started, you said you were kind of following a formula. Then you basically said, F this. this sounds really weird. We're doing it our way. And you've, you've only been doing it for less than a month. And I just looked it up. I think you have over 300,000 viewers in less than a month. That's an incredible amount of people. So what's the recipe that's causing so many people to kind of watch what you're creating and just tell me about that creative process.
1: Yeah, i Don't know what's causing people to watch what we're doing, but I'm grateful that they are. Um, You know, look, when we started the YouTube videos, it was because we came across, we met some people out there and they told us they were making videos and we were like, okay, interesting. And then later when we got access to the internet, we looked it up and it turns out that they were reaching, you know, they had something like over 300,000 subscribers alone. Some of their videos had more than a million views and we realized, wow, people are really interested in what's going on out there. And their videos are more of, um, it's like a linear timeline. We, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, It follows their adventures as they go. Then we went here, then we went here, then we went here, and this is what happened. Uh, we didn't have a lot of back footage from that because we weren't planning on making videos. And we decided that instead we were just going to have each video stand alone and be a story that was kind of a snapshot of cruising life or thoughts that we had or an experience we wanted to share. And so we started making videos with that in mind and it turns out it's super hard because you have to come up with it's not just sort of like it's
2: really hard. yeah
1: it's not just a like a log of what happened you have to you know kind of create a theme and then film for it and all the rest and it's been a huge learning curve just like when we got ready for the boat we had to learn about all the systems now i have to learn about you know different focal lengths on lenses and how you light things correctly and how to do post-production but you're,
2: you're really good at learning all that
1: <laughs> yeah so it's been fun it's been interesting and it's it's also it's another chapter in our adventure. You know, I think getting to French Polynesia and exploring it for the first year was, was a, was sort of, um, an adventure. And then now that we're in French poly and we've bounced around and we're starting to revisit some spots, it's it, it sort of now we're sharing it. And, uh, on a platform that, that reaches, it, it's, it's really actually pretty cool because once we find a little island that has internet and we're able to upload a video and that's a whole adventure in itself,
2: there's <sighs>
1: yeah, giant- uploading,
0: uploading Uploading things in other countries at times can be pretty painful. We are really lucky in the United States that we have fast internet, relatively fast.
1: To, yeah, I almost it's a it, it's an all night process for me. It usually takes about 20 hours to upload a 6 or 7 minute video and it drops the connection a lot and all the rest. So when it's video upload day, that's usually I'm up for 1 to 2 days around the clock doing that. So we have to be in an Anchorage that's secure and safe and has an internet connection and and all the rest. Um, but anyways, the uh You know, it's what what I really like is that there's this interaction, right? So I put up this video, and we put up a video, and then they'll they'll be you know anywhere from 500 to a thousand something comments that people will share what about the video they um, most responded to, or they'll share a little bit of information, or ask a question, or whatever it is. So we're kind of like in the middle of nowhere having a dialogue with the world, and it's it's just like um,
2: it's all surreal. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's it's surreal, but it's it's also amazing and. You know, it, it, it's like an honor to to be able to share the adventure and, and have people actually follow along.
0: Yeah. And if I may, um, you know, your videos are great for the audience listening. They show themselves swimming with sharks. They show a grocery run. They show a little kid's birthday party and you get a pocket knife. Um, and he's really young and of course he cuts himself, but they, they, sh- they show the kids, they show a time when Nicole had a staph infection and Ryan did surgery on her booty, um, <laughs> they show almost getting naked and going swimming. They show all sorts of great people that they meet, beautiful landscapes, and it's it's really coming into itself. I really love your YouTube channel. For those who are interested, you can check out at, To a Float, and we'll have that information on the show notes. Who who are your biggest influences? Kind of Who has influenced you the most on this voyage and in life? Nicole.
2: Oh, thank you. And I'd have to say Ryan as well. I've learned so much, and... Most of the time, he's very patient with me when I'm learning a system on the boat.
1: That's not true. (laughs)
0: Being nice, (laughs) Um, so I appreciate that honesty.
1: But I like that he thinks that. (laughs) Please, nobody tell her how it really is.
0: (laughs) Like all couples, I I think what's interesting is you know there there's this. I don't know. I, I would have thought that you kind of would have gotten sick of each other after spending so much time on a boat in such close quarters. But it it really seems like you've just gotten so much closer.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We have yeah. we've spent literally around the clock, almost every single moment together for two years. And I mean, the only time we're apart is maybe when Nicole goes to the grocery store if I stay on the boat or something like that. Otherwise, we are together literally around, not just together, but together. Working in a, you know, what might be considered an uncomfortable environment facing challenges and stresses and all the rest Around the clock 24 hours a day, you know seven days a week <laughs> whatever for for two yeah. years mm-hmm. and uh, Definitely brought us immensely closer together and makes me just want to spend that much more time with her frankly Oh,
0: thanks, babe. You're welcome. Most <laughs> of the time. Most <laughs> If you guys could each go back in time and tell your teenage self one thing, what would you tell him and her?
1: Nicole's teenage self wouldn't be listening because she'd be too stoned.
0: <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> okay.
2: You know i I wish uh, I wish that I would tell myself um, to read more.
1: Mm. Ryan, right. how, how about you? I don't know what i would tell my teenage self i guess i would probably say um you know uh if that that you know i guess my teenage self had had big dreams but also was conflicted with what was kind of you know quote quote expected of him and and it led to a lot of conflict and i think at my teenage self had learned to surrender at a much earlier age and just you know, that there's a lot more happiness when you're actually charging after what it is that you're kind of drawn to do and that it does. It just works out. It does. I I don't know why. I still don't know why. But over and over and over again throughout the last, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, it's been that way and more so now than ever before. So maybe I would have encouraged him to start that path at a younger age.
0: So I just want to get into this a little bit because I think a lot of people would relate to this. Was your teenage self expected to I don't know, become a lawyer, or a doctor, like a lot of kids or.
1: Yeah, there was some of that. And, and the stuff that I was doing was, you know, was not good. You know, the surfers were bad people and, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was the, the stuff that I'm sure you're right. A lot of people can relate to, but maybe, uh, you know, it, 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 it's anybody, if, if you're drawn to do something and maybe it's non-conventional or something, there's going to be pressure on you to conform. Our, Our society tends to especially back then in the 90s and in the 80s was very much um, conformist driven you know but now it's kind of cool like kids these days like if they want to like you know dye their hair green and have spikes sticking out of their nose everyone's <laughs> like sweet go for it you know like so you don't, true. Even, you don't even have to be like your gender or anything in it. you can do whatever you want you know and it's
2: and it's, i think <laughs> and i and i had a different upbringing and i think i was very lucky with um what i experienced and i had parents that um let me try out a lot of different activities. Um, I wanted to be a teacher. They were like right on and, um, they gave, they had a lot more, um, I think I, I was given a lot of responsibility and I didn't uh, abuse that as much. (laughs) And, um, so I was, I had a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom. And it was, um, it was nice to, to explore and to grow up with something like that.
1: Yeah, you know, Shelby, this is a really good question that you asked and I think not just for my young teenage self, but I think all throughout life, even even older people, I think a lot of times, I mean, obviously, people are afraid of of trying something different because of of um they're afraid they're going to miss out on something or that somehow it's a big mistake or you know, what might happen if it's something that's not a really well-defined clear path to follow. And that goes right back to all that stuff we talked about earlier about fear and surrender and adventure and all the rest. If you embrace it as an adventure and you expect there to be unexpected turns and you don't measure your success based on did you achieve your initial goal or not, but rather did you have an adventure while you were seeking that goal, then it's a big perspective shift that that I think can be transformative in somebody's life in a positive way.
0: I love that. I mean, this, this is what wild ideas worth living is really all about. I think you even once said some of the best, you know, the best adventures aren't
1: always easy. Definitely.
2: (laughs) That's for sure.
1: But it's, it's, you know, easy isn't, isn't always good. I mean, you know, like, like our friend says, you know, too much comfort is caustic sometimes. I know you don't, really like that saying, but I do. <laughs> you know, but
0: that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything. Um, that's right. I, I think we just have different interpretations of what that means. And it is true. Too much comfort is, you know, we, as humans, we crave challenges. I think that's, that's true. And it's good for us. So what advice, I mean, you did kind of just talk to the, talk about this, but what advice can you give to people who want to live more wildly? They want to pursue their passions.
1: I would say, uh, explore what it is that's preventing that from happening. You know, like before you explore, let's say they want to explore the woods before you go into the woods, explore inside your own mind, you know, understand what is it that's keeping you from doing that. And if
2: there's an opportunity presented for you to um, go out there and do something, do it. Yeah, do it. Just do it.
0: Yeah. And I know I'm not supposed to inject, I'm not going to interject myself too much, but Ryan, you're really influential when I was debating on quitting a job that was very stable and really cool. And you just said, what's holding you back? go for it.
1: Yeah. But you, you thank you, but you're, you're the one who did it. I mean, it wasn't just that it was also your battles with depression. I'm sure you talk about that and, and all the rest. I mean, you, you are, it's like, once you start living this way, and I think you've talked about this before, once you kind of understand this approach towards life, you sort of end up, it's almost like you're magnetically attracted to other people who kind of share, you know, similar outlooks. And it's, it's like, um, you know it's almost like there's this tribe of like people like really living with a capital l and then and then there's like these these masses of people who are just kind of like automatons you know and and it it i'm not saying that one way is better than the other or that one way leads to happiness or the other but if you're compelled you're driven towards a sort of a wildlife you have these dreams and you have these things that you want to go do uh, just know that you're not alone and that as you start doing these and you surrender to that and you just and you actually take those steps you're you'll you'll find that there's a whole world opens up to you that you might not know even exists that reinforces it and that world brought together you and I for example and what you and that world led you to do those things you did with your job and with your depression and with a bunch of other things that we could talk about that then reflect back to me because I go wow look at what Shelby's doing she's charging and this is amazing and and it just kind of it's almost like a like a Nuclear reaction—it just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and and, and then into this giant explosion of awesomeness, you know.
0: Yeah. So this is episode five. So I haven't totally talked about having depression, but I did experience it pretty bad in 2009, and you know, I was debating on quitting a great job, and I had to face it head on. Um, I got help for it. I I did a lot of things to deal with depression, and ultimately surrendering to it, finding love, learning how to deal with my feelings, facing them head on. And making positive choices got me out of it. And it's interesting because the more I started talking about it, the more I realized so many people, especially a lot of the adventures I spoke to, had experienced something, some sort of depression or health issue. And until they faced it head on and decided to move in a different positive direction, were they able to kind of surrender to it? And and that that hardship lifted. Um, And I'm really lucky. I mean, I... I just, yeah, I've had really great friends and family around me and I've been able to surround myself with positivity and yeah, it's been a wild, wild adventure and wild ride. And for those of you who experience depression or experienced mental health, you are courageous to get help to do something about it. I know we're going off on a tangent, but I think that's something really important because I wasn't aware of how many adventures experienced that. And a lot of them are drawing to, to adventure because they have that and it helps them, um, So, you know, there's all sorts of ways to be wild and to face your life and to do courageous things in life. So this is about Ryan. So we're going to go back to him, but but,
1: (laughs) I appreciate you for bringing that up. Well, it it is, it is about me and you and everybody else, because it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about taking that first step. I mean, I've known you for a long, long time. I've been lucky enough to know you for a long time and, and well, and I remember you know, early on, it might have been just: uh, should I go surf on a day when the surf is a little bit bigger than I'm comfortable with? Should I, you know, for you even maybe, uh, you know, approach this guy for a date or whatever? It that is. was I mean,
0: never hard, Ryan. Come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> should I accept the guy who's approaching you for the date? <laughs> but I mean, the point is, is that these are all these little baby steps that we talked about earlier, and just you start taking steps, and then the steps sometimes become bigger, 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 and they ultimately you know, you have this positive feedback from them, but it starts with just taking that step in the first place. And, uh, and I think what you're doing and what I'm doing and what a lot of the people listening are doing kind of follows the same thing. And if somebody wants to go do something that is a huge step, they have to understand that really it's not a big giant step. It's a bunch of small steps that might have a bigger gap between them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So going back to reading, which is completely unrelated, what books do you love or recommend? I think um, The Power of
1: Now. Mm, That's a good one. Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. I think if somebody is even a little bit interested in the concept of sailing uh, as an adventure, they should read Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. They should read Dove by Robin Lee Graham. Mm -hmm. He's a 16-year-old kid who sailed around the world alone in a small sailboat a long time ago. Um, There's a more recent book called Love with a Chance of Drowning. That's
0: a great book. (laughs) I love that
1: book by De Roche. Yes. Yep, mm-hmm. It's uh, written by a woman who uh, falls in love with a guy. She's terrified of the water and, and doesn't know anything about sailing or boats and falls in love with a guy who's getting ready to sail around the world and she just decides to go with him kind of like right after they met. You know? Yeah,
0: she has a one-night stand basically and she goes sailing with yeah. him. It's an awesome
1: read. And they follow the same route that we did. So mm. it's uh, it's interesting and it's written recently. Where a dove and uh, around the world are much older. There's a book called Endurance by um, – I forget who wrote it, but it's, uh, it's about a sailing boat that was trapped in the ice in the Atlantic in the, you know, Antarctic ocean. This is, you know, a hundred years ago or more. And they survived in these little rowboats. They sailed all the way from Antarctica to somewhere in South America, basically, uh, in these little teeny rowboats in the worst weather you can imagine in the middle of winter with no supplies. And, and it's a true story. It's, it's all documented. Shackleton wrote it, Ernest Shackleton, mm-hmm. And it kind of gives you some perspective on, on what's possible out there. And, what it, and, and you know, you're, you're, uh, maybe you have a, a small sailboat that you don't really think is seaworthy and all the rest. And you read that book and you think you just have like the Queen Mary, <laughs> you know, after that.
0: That's awesome. And then you talked about once you read the book Deep. Um,
1: mm, that's a great book also.
0: Deep by James Nestor. He's actually coming on the show. That's about underwater exploration. Um, cool. So what was the best food you looked forward to when you came home? Mexican
2: food. Mexican food. That's Bye. A Yeah. <laughs>
0: have you still... gotten your fill
1: yet? Oh God, no! But now we're in Northern California, so it's all we have to switch. So tonight, now...
0: tonight we're t- getting uh, Chinese takeout.
1: Chinese food.
0: Awesome. What's <laughs> what's next in your life? Kind of where do you go back? What are you going? What are you going to do?
1: I have to edit another video. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not looking
0: that far ahead
1: yet. We don't. So really you're look- going
0: back to French Polynesia, though. Your boat's in French Polynesia. You're going to be there for at least another year, right?
1: Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's as far as we go. <laughs> we don't know where we're going to be. I mean, we know that when we get back, we have to, you know, do some repairs on the boat. That'll take a week or two, and then we'll just sort of look at the weather and what we feel like doing, and then that's where we're going to go. That's- but the whole thing will be filmed, and you can you can find out the answer to your question in about a month.
0: How are you guys? Um, financing this trip? I think a lot of people are going to have that question.
1: Okay, mm. well, it's a great question. Uh, we, we're we fortunate enough to own a house and renting out that house provides a big bulk of the money that we need for this trip. We're really grateful to have had, um, some incredibly supportive sponsors with equipment and such that made Naoma a very comfortable, capable boat. Again, it's it's all extra stuff that we could do without it, but we're grateful to have it, if that makes sense. Like, don't yeah. let... Lack of equipment stop you from going. Um, right now, we're actually youtube when when you make these videos, they put ads in the videos at the beginning and and the creators, the people who make these videos get a little bit of the cut of the money from those ads. So um, that helps us it was kind of an added surprising little boost. And we have there's a site called Patron where if people like our videos or our adventures and they want to, they can, it's kind of like leaving a tip for our videos. They sign up on Patreon. There's links on our, all of our YouTube videos in the description. And, uh, you know, a lot of people donate $2 or $5 or whatever it is per video that we put up. And, you know, when, when hundreds or thousands or whatever people do that, it adds up to enough that, that lets us continue to voyage and, and to continue more importantly, to share the adventures. Cause it's, it's expensive to film and upload and all this when you're in a place as remote as French Polynesia. Yeah.
0: So can you tell people where they can find you, all of your social media channels and your YouTube video?
1: Sure. If they go to toafloat.com, um, T-W-O, afloat, A-F-L-O-A-T.com, that will automatically go to the YouTube channel. And on any of our YouTube videos, If they clip show more, which sort of is the description of the video underneath where the video is showing, that has links to all kinds of stuff, the Facebook, the Patreon, uh, information that might help them do their own adventure someday, uh, anything they could want. Or they could also, if they want to contact us directly, they can go to Facebook uh, slash toafloat and um, reach us that way.
0: Awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure. You gave such good, insightful advice. I I think people are going to take a lot away from this. I'll have some more about what you guys talked about, links to the books, links to your website, links to YouTube in the show notes. And any parting thoughts?
1: Just how stoked we are to be able to talk with you, Shelby. Thank you for creating these podcasts and including yeah, exactly. us in them. Exactly. Thank
2: you for in- inviting us
0: to share our story with you and wow. everyone. You're so welcome, you guys. We'll have an awesome day and we'll we'll talk again soon. So check out To Float if you're listening and we'll have more on wildideasworthliving.com.
1: Welcome aboard, everybody.
0: You. Thanks again for listening to episode five. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Definitely check out To Float on YouTube. The videos are pretty short. They're only about 10 minutes or so long. They have great visuals, awesome music, and they're highly, highly entertaining. You can also go to wildideasworthliving.com to check out the show notes. I'll post all the great things Nicole, Ryan, and I discussed on this episode, including links to books they recommended that you can buy right now. Next week, we're featuring Kimberly and Kate two badass moms who started a fitness company called Graced by Grit. The company helps women cultivate their grit to find their grace. They've actually loved doing the show so much, they decided to sponsor it so you may recognize the name of the brand. If you're a mom or you want to start a business or you just like fitness, check out the episode next week. Make sure you also go to wildideasworthliving.com to sign up for our email newsletter where we're sharing awesome new updates. Thank you all for your support. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all my listeners. Thanks to all my subscribers. Thanks to all my sponsors. And don't forget, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week.